This is the Baymaw Podcast with Marty Solomon. I'm his co-host Brent Billings. Today we are diving into the story of the Passover and its plagues, God's interaction with Pharaoh, and the call of God's rescued people. Yeah, so I thought maybe we might take a couple podcasts to do this, but after we looked at it, we're just going to do this in one. One big, quick conversation. And part of the reason is um, you might have remembered me kind of lamenting before uh, on another podcast about how a lot of Foreman's older material, Rabbi David Foreman, we've talked about him before, uh, a lot of his older material had been taken offline, stuff that I had learned from originally. And now I know why. Um, over the Christmas break, I picked up a book I had of his for quite some time but hadn't read yet. It was his most recent book. Uh, Jim, thank you for giving me that to giving that to me as a gift. Um, but uh, his most recent book was titled The Exodus You Almost Passed Over by Rabbi David Foreman. The Exodus You Almost Passed Over. It's a good title. It's a good title. Just like the queen you thought you knew. Uh, he likes to do that with his titles. Um, but I read through it and I realized that he had just, uh, man, done so much work since I had heard it years ago and had packaged it with even more work that he had done and was just so good. Um, and I didn't know how I, would, how I would ever take some of his new material and work it into my my current teaching. And so what I'm going to do is I'm just going to recommend you read the book. I'm going to summarize it. It really won't be a whole lot different than my past teaching, but I'm going to point you towards that book because his material is so, so good. Um, so The Exodus You Almost Passed Over by Rabbi David Foreman. Um, if you find what we're talking about today at all intriguing, you're definitely going to want to get the book. Oh, so good. And he just gets better and better with every book he writes uh, with being able to written to write, to communicate, excuse me, in uh, written in written form. And man, this is no exception. It's probably his best work, best work yet, in my opinion. But anyway, so that's kind of one of the centerpieces that we're using uh, for this, and I have no uh, desire to plagiarize. So I want to make that real clear up front that that's the work I'm using to kind of walk through this. And I'm just kind of giving you a summary uh, synopsis. I'm only going to read uh, one brief section out of the book. Um, I'm just kind of giving you a flyby cliff notes of uh, the big general argument he makes in the book, and then you can go uh, find it for yourself. Uh, but Foreman in typical rabbi fashion, rabbis love to do this, are going to start with a whole list of questions. Uh, they're going to get you an, into the story and pull you into the narrative by asking a whole lot of questions. And so Foreman does that. He's going to ask a whole bunch of questions, and then we're going to go about trying to answer those questions in reverse. We're going to go backwards as we try to answer these questions. But uh, here are these questions. Um, first of all, the name Passover. Like of all the things you're going to name this holiday, Foreman says, why name it Passover? And he has these brilliant stories that he uses uh, about angels and people picking names and just to put it to a fun background. But why would we name it Passover? Why not Freedom Day? Why not Independence Day? Isn't isn't the the whole story of Passover, isn't it about uh, freedom and independence wasn't about the liberation of the Israelites from Egypt. Like why Passover? Why focus on one? And it's a big moment. And no doubt it's a big moment in the story, but it's not the point of the story. Why focus on one of the plagues, the Passover where God saved the firstborn? And speaking of firstborn, why is firstborn so important to this whole thing? So uh, one of the things that Foreman brings up is the idea of Teflon. Uh, Jews wear these boxes every morning. Orthodox Jews will put on what's called teflon. And there are these little black boxes that 
uh, you have these leather straps. You wrap them around your arm, and you end up putting that box on your bicep, and then you have a headband, and you have a little box that goes up on your forehead. And these teflin, as the Jews' uh, uh, way that they follow the command, um, write them on your hearts, bind them to your foreheads. They do that using teflin. Now, inside these black boxes are is a parchment. And on this small little parchment, you get to write any th- any small list. You're only going to get two or three commands on there. But if you got to pick two or three commands of all the Torah to put in your little black boxes, what are you going to put on the black boxes? Well, the first thing they put in there is Shema. Shema Israel, Adonai Eloheinu, Adonai Echad. Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord is one. That's very critical to Jewish thought, belief, practice. That's a big deal. So that one makes sense. No problem with Shema. The next one they have in there is the Ve'ahavta. Ve'ahavta Adonai Eloecha. Baklo Levavcha. Uvaklo Nafshecha. Uvaklo Meodecha. Love the Lord your God uh, with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. That's a pretty good law. Like, if I had to pick two or three laws, that one would make it in the box. That one doesn't, that doesn't phase me at all. Good choice. But law number three comes out of the story of the Exodus, and it is the law of the broken neck donkey. Now, did you even know, Brent, that there was a law of the broken neck donkey? Uh, I've heard of it. I'm not really familiar. It's not exactly a popular one that we talk about. Oh, no. it's like, a, like, why choose this random obscure? It's a law about if you have a firstborn donkey, you either have to redeem it with money. But if you can't redeem it with money, you're not allowed to give it to God because God gets all the firstborn animals. You can't give it to God because it's an unclean animal, so you can't take it to the temple. So you have to take it out and you have to break its neck and give it to God by killing it. That law is in the black boxes. Like, why the obsession with the firstborn? Passover, broken neck donkey. Um, Not only that, but uh, there's a lot of talk in this entire story about firstborn. Ultimately, God's going to say to Pharaoh, to Paro, if you don't give me my firstborn, I'll take your firstborn. Like that's essentially going to be the thrust of the message when Moses gets to Pharaoh in the Exodus story. By the way, I would also point out that if you haven't read the Exodus story, you may want to do that before you listen to the rest of this podcast. It'll be very helpful. You want some familiarity with that story, but I'll leave that up to you. Um, but, but God is ultimately going to say, if you don't give me my firstborn, I will take yours. But the problem with that is that Israel's not God's firstborn. Like, what does that mean? Like, how is Israel God's firstborn? Israel is not the firstborn of all creation. It, it, it's not, Israel's not, um, Jacob's not firstborn. Joseph wasn't firstborn. Like, how is this the firstborn? It just doesn't make any sense. And why this fixation on firstborn anyway? Like, what is all, all that about? But not only that, let's move on to a new idea. Um, Foreman says, if you were like in charge of the Exodus, uh, let's say it was a video game or a board game or whatever. And you were in charge of this and you were, you had like unlimited power and you could do whatever you needed to do to get the job done. As we believe God does, would it really take you 10 plagues to rescue the Israelites out of Egypt? It seems rather inefficient. So why is God taking so much time and energy and, and just nonsense that seems to be causing misery? Is this like some sick game that he's playing? Like, what's going on here? But let's move on to another question, Foreman says. Not only this, but when Moses finally gets to Paro, and he asks him to let the people go, what he, what he asks for quite clearly is 
Paro let God's people go for three days. But why three days? If what, if what Moses really means is forever, like that's what the Exodus is about, right? Getting God's people to leave Egypt forever. Why would Moses say, let us go for three days? Isn't that deceptive? Isn't that like not accurate, not true? Why is Moses asking for three days when he's supposed to be asking for all of time? Seems like he would at least ask for seven days. It, well, so, yeah, or something, right? Something at least more Jewish or what? Like, why ask for three days? So, so odd, right? Okay, so um, let's see. Uh, next question that Foreman raises. Um, of course, there's a, this whole issue about Pharaoh changing his mind um, and and God changing it for him. So is it that Pharaoh's hardening his heart or is it that God's hardening Pharaoh's heart? And which is it? Like, this is the great... Uh, famous tension for us Christian theologians, especially in the Calvinist versus the the determinism versus free will debate. What's going on in this story? Nobody seems to be pleased because sometimes it's Paro making the decision and sometimes it's God and there's that whole dilemma. So what's going on with that? Um, and, and then while we're, while we're talking about Paro, let's just keep talking about Paro. Why does he seem to be so concerned about the wrong things? So, for instance, in Plague 2, do uh, you remember what Plague 2 was? Uh, that was frogs. Frogs. So, uh, so Moses, the second plague happens. The frogs are filling the land. Moses comes to Paro and says, Paro, tell me when you'd like the frogs to be gone. Now, if you're Paro, what would your answer be? Uh, I want them out right now. Right. How about yesterday? would be great because they're kind of causing a ruckus. Paro says, Tomorrow. That's a weird thing to say. Why tomorrow? Um, and then later, there's a plague where the livestock are plagued. And Paro doesn't ask his servants to check on his livestock at all. He, he is completely unconcerned about his own livestock. What he asks him to check on is whether or not the Israelites' livestock are still alive. Like the one thing that's so odd about Pharaoh's behavior is he seems to be absolutely unfazed by power, the power of the plague. If I'm, if I were Paro, I would be concerned with how powerful these plagues are. Like, I can't believe God wiped out all the livestock, like all of them. Paro is unconcerned with power. What he's concerned with is precision. He wants to know, can you really control when the frogs go away? Don't make them go away now. I want them to go away tomorrow. How about that? Uh, I'm not concerned about whether or not my livestock died. I'm concerned about whether or not there's the precision needed to make sure that their livestock didn't die. He's all concerned about precision. So what's that all about? And then uh, then there's these two speeches that got, that Moses gives to Paro. He comes and he says, Paro, uh, we, need to, um, we need to go out because uh, Adonai wants us to come love and celebrate and worship with him in the desert. And Paro says, uh, in fact, I'm actually going to read this section uh, out of the book because I thought he did a really good job of, of pointing this out. So, so here's Foreman. Uh, this is chapter four. Uh, this is what Moses says. Thus says Adonai, God of Israel, Exodus 5, verse 1. Send out my people and let them rejoice before me in the desert. 
Foreman says, let's freeze the action right here and imagine that we can walk back in time and inhabit that moment. Pretend you are Moses and you have just said these words to Paro. Paro is about to respond to this demand you have made, and when he does, you will need to figure out what to say next. So listen carefully and plot your next move accordingly. Here is what Paro says to you. Who is Adonai that I should listen to his voice and let Israel go? I do not know Adonai. And what more, I will not let Israel go. Okay, Moshe, your move. How are you going to respond to this? Paro is pretty direct here. There's not a lot of ambiguity in his position. He doesn't know your God. He's not interested in in letting Israel go. End of story. What are you going to say to him? You seem to have two options. The first is to simply accept Paro's answer, throw up your hands, and go back to God for further instructions. A little bit later, Foreman goes on. Your second option is to do the exact opposite. Instead of retreating, you could up the ante. Look, Paro, you don't realize who you're provoking here. It's the master of the universe, and trust me, you don't want him to get angry. If you back, if you don't back down, or if you back down now and let your slaves go, I think you'll be able to work something out with this God. But if you don't, look, I don't know how much of Egypt is going to be left after God is done with you. Either of these responses would have made entire sense, retreat or up the ante. But what seems to make absolutely no sense is what Moses actually says. The God of the Hebrews happened upon us. Let us go, please, for three days in the desert, the sacrifice of our God. Uh, Let us go for three days in the desert and sacrifice to our God. Otherwise, he might hurt us with the pestilence or with the sword. Now, did Moses really think this would work? It's as if he's saying, Paro, we're really scared of our God. Who knows what he might do to us if we don't take a long weekend in the desert to offer sacrifices to him? Please, can't we just go? You wouldn't want your loyal slaves to get hurt or anything. Did Moses really believe this had a chance of working? So that was a little excerpt. uh, What's going on there with that speech? And then uh, let's do one last question here. Uh, Why does God all of a sudden care about names? He never has up to this story. What's so interesting is that if you look all throughout Genesis, God has no care in the world about names. Like people might name him things. Remember Avraham naming the Lord who will provide. I remember Hagar giving him the name, the Lord who sees me. God has never been concerned with names. You're talking about God's name, name for God. Right. As uh, opposed to you know, humans' names, which God does seem to care about. Right. Absolutely. Yeah. Not humans' names, but his name, his specific name of who is the name of this God. Uh, he, he doesn't seem to be all that concerned about it until all of a sudden in Exodus. And now all of a sudden Moses asks him a question about names. And in Exodus 3, he's got names for him. And then later in Exodus 6, all of a sudden God is really before Moses goes to speak to the Israelites, God stops him and says, now remember, remember that conversation we had about names. We're going to talk about names. And, and why is it, in fact, if we were to read uh, Exodus 6, verse 2, that God says, I used to be known by God Almighty. And the Hebrew there is El Shaddai. But now I'm going to be known by, and he gives his holy name, yod Hey vav Hey. We come sometimes say Yahweh or Yahweh. Uh, I, I sometimes say Adonai or Hashem. Uh, Jews often do. Um, but why, why all of a sudden is God, and when God says, I used to be known this way, but now I'm giving myself a new name. But it's not really a new name because if you read through Genesis, it's obvious that it's not a new name. It's all throughout the book of Genesis. So what has got up to there? So we're going to pick up there. We're going to start answering some of these questions in reverse order. So let's keep talking about names here for just a moment. 
So God says that he was known to Avraham, Yitzhak, and Jacob as El Shaddai. Now, El was a common name for God, Elohim or El. It would have been how anybody talked about God. But he says that the patriarchs knew him as El Shaddai. That's how he made himself known in the past. Now, the name El Shaddai is an interesting one because the name really doesn't seem to mean anything. But the rabbis in the oral tradition spoke about that quite a bit. And they thought they had come up with a pretty good explanation. They said, Shaddai doesn't seem to mean anything, but if you were to take the consonants of the word Shaddai and make a sentence out of them, which isn't really that far off of how names often work. If you take the, uh, the sheen and the dalits and all of those things and tried to make a sentence or as close as you could out of that name, the rabbi suggested that his name uh, would be Mishachmar Lecholamo Dai. Or the one who knows, uh, excuse me, I want to read this directly. The one who said to his world enough. They said, and we talked about this, if you remember, back in our early podcast with Adam and Eve. Uh, And there's a big discussion about, not a big one, but there's a significant discussion about this in Foreman's book. Um, uh, He used to be known as the God who knew when to say enough. The God who said to his world enough. Uh, And so what Foreman suggests here is that uh, what he wants Moshe to understand is that he can go into this Exodus story and he can talk all about God's power, but that's not who God ultimately is. God's fundamental posture is not about power. God is up to something else. In fact, a direct quote here from the book, God will make use of power as he is about to do. But it does not define him. God is about something else. So then you start to look at the name he does give. He says, I, I used to be known as El Shaddai, but now I want to be known as yod vav And this name speaks of timelessness. And there's this wonderful explanation when we were talking about Avraham and we talked about the name of God and Hanani. Uh, and Hanani and all these different expressions and uses of this. And we talked about the name of God being rooted to that uh, wonderful explanation in the book of how that works. If you were to take, I remember uh, being taught this by somebody who had um, an overhead of all things. Remember those overheads? <laughs> yes. Oh my goodness. Unfortunately, we used those in the church for much longer than we needed to. Ugh. But if you took uh, an overhead transparency of the Hebrew for I was... And then you took another transparency of the Hebrew for I am, and then another transparency of the Hebrew for I will be, and you lay them on top of each other, what you get is yod Hey vav Hey in the Hebrew. It seems to imply to the rabbis and the sages that the name for God refers to timelessness. It seems to include I was, I am, and I will be. There's this timeless nature about who God is. Now, uh, Foreman describes this using an illustration about a Monopoly board. Imagine if you lived on a Monopoly board, right? And you, you've examined this board that you live on long enough that you've noticed that the board says, made by Parker Brothers. And you, you have this conversation, and he talks about the, uh, the top hat and the shoe. And he says, you're talking to one another, and you're like, do you really think Parker exists? 
Like, oh, of course Parker exists. Look at all the evidence that's out here that Parker exists. And I don't want to plagiarize Foreman's illustration, but his big, his big idea is that there'd be lots of evidence to suggest that, of course, Parker exists. The problem is, how do you explain Parker? If you're the top hat or the shoe, you can't explain Parker because the only way you could explain Parker is to use images and, and definitions and things that you're used to. Like, like the top hat and the shoe would only be able to talk about Parker using Monopoly awareness. But Parker is so much bigger than Monopoly. He made Monopoly. You could never f- truly explain who Parker was if you were living. And, and he said, this is what God's trying to convey to Moses. Moses, you want to know my name and, and everybody wants to know my name, but you can't truly grasp who I am. I am the one who made your Monopoly board. And so I was, I am, and I will be is about as good as we're going to get, which Foreman then goes on in the next chapter to talk about, this is actually the problem with pagan polytheism. If you're like Marty, you're starting to lose me. This is getting a little crazy. Welcome to the world of the rabbis, because I promise you, we're coming back around to all those questions. So bear with us. Uh, So we have this. Uh, this question here, this is a problem with pagan polytheism. You see, in a polytheistic world, uh, you have made a bunch of gods in the image of the things on the monopoly board. That's how polytheism works. Like you have a god of thunder, and you have a god of water, and you have a god of, you have gods, many gods, that represent the things on the board. And obviously the world is the way that it is in a polytheistic world because all those gods are interacting with themselves. Why does it rain? Well, because the rain god's doing his thing. And why doesn't it rain? Well, apparently somebody's mad at the rain god and the sun god is outdoing the rain god and, and these gods are in constant conflict. But you, as a person on a monopoly board in a polytheistic world, you are disconnected. You are, you are an observer. You are in an indirect relationship with the gods because the gods are doing their thing on the monopoly board. This is the problem in a polytheistic world. Uh, And this is actually why Pharaoh seems to be so concerned about precision over power. Because Pharaoh's really used to gods doing all kinds of things in his world. Like he understands that gods are powerful. In fact, he understands himself to be intimately connected to these gods. He understands power. Power is not an issue. But precision, you see, in a polytheistic world, precision is not something you can accomplish because the gods are always in chaotic conflict with one another. So precision is something that you would never have control over. Power, yes, if you appease the right god at the right time in the right way, power is impressive, but not something you can't explain. Precision, especially precision displayed over and over and over again. In fact, at one point during the plagues, We're going to see hail, and can you remember, Brent, from our past conversations, what the hail had in it in the Hebrew? Uh, It was fire. Yeah. Uh, In the Hebrew, it literally says the hail had fire inside of it, which is like this really direct, you don't get that in a polytheistic world. The fire god and the ice god don't work together. They are like opposite opposing gods and forces. And so we have all of these polytheistic confrontations here. And this also helps us explain Moshe's two speeches. Moshe comes to Pharaoh 
and he suggests. You see, here's the difference about monotheism over polytheism. In polytheism, I have an indirect relationship to the gods that are at war all around me. But if it's monotheism, Foreman points out monotheism demands direct relationship. If there's only one creator God, then that means that there's only one God in charge of this all, and I have to be a part of his divine plan. Monotheism demands direct relationship. Polytheism demands indirect relationship. And Moshe comes to Paro, and Moshe says, listen, we have a God who wants to have a relationship with us. He wants us to come party with him in the desert. And Paro says, "Mm, no thanks, don't think so. And so then Moses reframes the request according to Paro's worldview. Okay, let me put it the way that you understand it. Our God will be angry if we don't go and worship him. And Paro still says, absolutely not. So at this point, this is going to become a contest, and not just a contest, but this is going to become, let me, let me read my notes here. Paro says no, and now we have a pursuit of Paro's heart. And so uh, we'll dig into this a lot more. It's in the book. Uh, in fact, this is the greatest part of the book, is he'll go through plague by plague by plague and show how this is working. But one of the things that you and I don't catch in the English is that there are two different words being used for the hardening of Paro's heart. Uh, there are two words. One of the word, one of the words that's being used there when it says uh, Paro hardened his heart is the word kavod. The word kavod means sometimes means glory. It can also mean heavy or weighty. It can mean stubborn. I, use, I, I like to word, use the word stupided, uh, but it can be stubborn. Um, so there are times in the story where uh, Paro stubborns his heart. He just refuses to see it. And then there are, there are points in the story where uh, the word is hazak. And hazak is the word to strengthen. One's going to speak of stubbornness. The other one is going to speak of resolve. So there's going to be some times where Pharaoh's heart is stubborned. He just doesn't see it. He doesn't get it. And sometimes Paro's going to do that. And sometimes God's going to do that. And then there's some times where his heart is strengthened, hazak, and that is resolve. He sees it, he gets it, but he is strengthened, and he decides to, with resolve, push through. And that's sometimes what's going to happen. And sometimes Paro's going to do it, and sometimes God's going to do it. And we'll walk through this in our discussion groups, but I kind of challenge you to walk through the plagues and use your Blue Letter Bible and or get Foreman's book if you want to do it the quick and easy way, uh, and look at how the words get used. Because there comes a point early in the plagues where Pharaoh agrees to let the people go. It raises this question, what is free will? Like, what is the true deprivation of free will? Like, we get a little uncomfortable because we feel like God's taken away Pharaoh's free will. But if God's really trying to get Pharaoh to make a choice, like let's assume that God really wants Pharaoh's heart, which by the way would explain why God takes so long. 10 plagues? 10 plagues? Yes, because Pharaoh wants to make sure that, excuse me, God wants to make sure that even Pharaoh has an opportunity to understand what he's up against. And so God will take as long as he has to to get to Pharaoh's heart. 
Yeah, that's what we talked about in the last podcast in Exodus 7, where he says, I do this so that Pharaoh might know that I am God. Absolutely. Like God wants everybody. We said in the last podcast, he was going to do war against the Egyptian worldview, but he wasn't mad at the Egyptians. He wasn't mad at, at Paro. He's wanting everybody to know who he is and experience who he is and be willing to find freedom in the biblical narrative, the story that he wants to tell, should we say. So what we end up finding is early on in this uh, story, uh, Pharaoh says, fine, you know what? You guys can go. I'm out. But what we find through the story is that Paro really doesn't get it. Like he doesn't actually get what God wants him to get. He understands that there's powerful plagues and this isn't going well for Egypt. And he says, you know what? Just get out of here. It doesn't really matter. But God says, no, I I don't want you to just let my people go. I want you to decide whether or not you're going to bow the knee. Not just bow the knee in submission, but give yourself to a worldview that's going to make a bigger difference in this world. And until I know that that is the choice you're making, we're not done yet. And so if you see, God steps into the story and actually hazaks his heart. And then, but at some point, and this is going to go on back and forth, at some point, Pharaoh is going to get it. And I'll let you decide where that is in the plagues. You can read the book. Uh, But at some point in the story of the plagues, it clicks. And Pharaoh says, I completely understand. I see it for what it is. And I am choosing to hazak my heart. I'm choosing to say, I see it. And I just say no. And at that point, God says, well, then. We're going to finish this story off so that everyone else understands what this story is trying to communicate. But this whole story becomes a pursuit of Pharaoh and his heart. And then, as we talked about last week, God then turns and invites his people. And why? So now we're dealing with the very first questions. Why is this Passover? Why the broken neck donkey? Why the obsession with the firstborn? Because this is a story not of who Israel is. It's not that Israel is their firstborn. But in a very similar sense to Jacob and Joseph, this is a very similar story to Jacob and Joseph. God's looking for a people who wants to be, who wants to be his Bahor. And so he says, if you will join me, Israel, in being my Bahor. Now, what's the responsibility of a Bahor? We've talked about it before. Brent, talk to me about what a Bahor's job is. Well, you have a, an extra measure of inheritance and you take on the responsibility of the entire household. So when your father passes away, you're responsible for caring for, feeding, clothing, everything. Right. And if your father's still alive, what is your responsibility amongst your siblings? Uh, you would lead them. And in what ways? If you're going to honor your father, what ways would you lead them? Well, you you do what your father does. You would try to convince your, your siblings, your brothers and sisters, to take up the mantle of dad's legacy, right? Like this is this is the role that God's asking his people. Just like we talked about with Moses, God was looking for, I think you pointed out in our last podcast, a kingdom of priests. He started with Moshe, a man who would go and be the message, not just bring the message. And now he's inviting all of Israel to not just bring a message, but he's inviting Israel to go be the message. But that's going to mean that they have to be born again as God's Bechor. And I use that language on purpose because it is what the conversation with Nicodemus in John 3 is all about. Water and spirit, that's the exodus. 
He's inviting Nicodemus to join God and his great project, just like God invited the Israelites in uh, the Passover story. And so, in fact, Akiva has pointed out way back in the early rabbinical teachings, Akiva pointed out that the, the Israelites left, if they had put, do- if they had put blood on, their, on the mantles, and Akiva said that word should be translated thresholds, so that would be the bottom and the top of the door, as, lo- as well as the doorposts. They've put blood, uh, and how have they put the blood on the door? All four sides. All four sides. All the way around. All the way around. Meaning that they're leaving in haste through a bloody door. Can you think of any kind of uh, anything else where you leave in haste through a bloody door? Not to get too graphic. Uh, well, a newborn child might do something right. like that right as they're coming into the world. Exactly. And the rabbis always spoke of the Red Sea as a birth canal. Like this was Israel's chance to be born again. This was Israel's chance to be born uh, as God's behor, to go out into the world and show the world what God was like. And so we end up having this mission. And that's where we're going to pick up and take off as we continue our walk through the Exodus. Um, but this is going to be the great story of God's Bahor. Now, just as a concluding thought, as we wrap this up, I will say this. Part four in uh, Foreman's book is all about uh, the Exodus that might have been, he called it. And he goes all the way back to Joseph. And if you liked any of our conversation about Joseph, I learned so much after we did our Joseph podcast. It was too late. Uh, But so much about the story of Joseph. Part four of his book, the last part, is almost worth, not almost, it's worth the the price of the book just in part four in the way that he connected the story of Joseph. And part four is where he answers that great question. um, Why does Moses say three days and not forever? Uh, Because... uh, Foreman says, if you know your Joseph story, you know that um, uh, you know that Pharaoh is supposed to say yes, and if Pharaoh and if Paro says yes, they're not going anywhere. They're going to stay in Egypt. Uh, but you'll have to read the part four of the book. To, it's just absolutely incredible. So good, so tasty and delicious. But I give that to you as a recommendation. Sounds good to me. Is that it for this episode? I think that's it for this episode. We did that in 34 minutes, man. That's pretty good. I've been getting a little wordy lately. Oh, well, there's there's so much to talk about. There's, there is. And there is. And we will talk about it in discussion groups. And uh, we will use this book a lot more in discussion groups. But, um, yeah, good stuff. We'll make sure we get the book linked in the show notes, of course, as we always do, so you can find it. And, uh, yeah, but I think that's good for discussion fodder. Yeah. So if you live on the Palouse, join us for those discussion groups. Moscow on Tuesday, Pullman on Wednesday. If you're not on the Palouse, we hope you've got your own discussion group going on. Pick up Foreman's book. Uh, get your own discuss- discussion going. Uh, if you want to get a hold of Marty, you can find him on Twitter at Marty Solomon. You can find me on Twitter at EIBCB. And you can find more details about the show at BaymontDiscipleship.com. Thanks for joining us on the Baymont Podcast, and we'll talk to you again soon. Music